Hi, it's Alice. In 1784, Robert Burns wrote a poem that gave us the phrase, Man's Inhumanity to Man, a phrase that has been used countless times since and tragically has never had cause to wane. I looked up the origin of the line because I was thinking about the three authors you'll hear from on this episode. Each of them has, through their extraordinary writing, explored the human struggle for dignity in a world which is far too often cruel beyond imagination. Two of these world-renowned writers are white South Africans who were fierce critics of the apartheid system. Athol Fugard, South Africa's greatest playwright, and novelist Nadine Gordimer, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1991. Our third writer, Elie Wiesel, was also outspoken in the struggle against apartheid. He stood for the victims of oppressive regimes everywhere. But he was best known as a survivor of the Holocaust, who wrote many novels and works of nonfiction reflecting his experience and was called a messenger to mankind, when he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986. We profiled Elie Wiesel on another episode several years ago, which you should certainly listen to. It was primarily an extensive interview. But this is one of those episodes we do just once or twice a year, where we give you a taste of what happens at the Academy of Achievements International Summits, when some of the greatest achievers in the world come together and speak to young delegates. So stand by for Elie Wiesel, Nadine Gordimer, and Athol Fugard on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Academy, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for. But boy, you better not miss him. Athel Fugard spoke at the Academy of Achievement Summit in 2014, which was held in San Francisco. Nadine Gordimer gave her talk in 2009 in Cape Town, South Africa, and Ellie Wiesel in 2007 in Washington, D.C. And we'll play them in that order. Just for quick background, Athol Fugard has written over 30 plays, including The Blood Knot, Master Harold and the Boys, and The Road to Mecca. When Blood Knot opened in the 1960s, Fugard starred in it alongside a black actor playing mixed-race brothers. The authorities shut it down after a single performance. Fugard's passport was also revoked some years later because of his stance against the apartheid system. But that didn't stop his plays from being produced worldwide. In 2011, he received a Tony Award for Lifetime Achievement. You know, it's very intimidating after the two speakers I listened to. 
you know, to uh, come in with my <laughs> contribution. About what I'm going to try and do with my 10 minutes is um, tell you how I avoided two mistakes, one right at the beginning of my career and one at the end of my career, which could have uh, stopped me from writing. And the first one, starting at the beginning, was when I was a 21-year-old student at the University of Cape Town, studying philosophy, social science, anthropology. And I'd got through my first year, very in good shape, good form, got my class medals. Second year, got the class medals again. And then I was in my third year. And at the same time as I was doing all this studying, I was busy writing because that sort of duality had been in my life since I, since I could first remember the desire to tell stories and also the quest for knowledge. And I was a f couple of months away from my writing the exams for my first degree, which would have been a Bachelor of Arts. And I paused and stopped and thought to myself, something doesn't feel right, doesn't feel right about this. Why do I have this feeling that getting that degree is going to be a trap from which I might not escape? Because with a degree like that, I could have gone on to be a teacher, I could have pursued an academic career, gone on to do a master's or something like that. But my, that essential sense I have of myself as a storyteller had made me stop and think. And I needed advice from somebody. I needed to talk to somebody who I could trust. And it might sound fanciful, but the truth is I found that person in the shape of Beethoven, the great romantic musical composer. I remember leaving the university campus and going down to the College of Music, which was part of the university, to listen to Beethoven. And at that time, I was particularly fond of the Seventh Symphony. And at the end of that Seventh Symphony, I knew I was right, that it was a trap, and that I had to go my own way if I wanted to be a writer. So I wrote a letter off to my mother. Now she was an almost illiterate Afrikaner woman, peasant, but had been given by the grace of God an incredible sense of natural justice. And she had looked at the world around her and realized that something was wrong because these, I must just remind you, talking about myself at the age of 21, I'm now 82. At 21, we're talking about the dark years of apartheid, that appalling system of institutionalized racial prejudice that characterized South Africa of those days. And 
She had scrimped and scraped her pennies and her tickies, her little dimes, in order to get me to university. She worked very, very hard. And I wrote to her, not knowing what her reply was going to be, saying, Mom, I want to be a writer, and I want to see, writers have got to see the world, and that's what I think I should do. That woman wrote back to me in the almost illegible and writing, saying, Hallie, and that was my nickname as a child, Hallie, if that's what you've got to do, do it. So I put a couple of tins of sardines in a haversack, stood on the side of the road, and hitchhiked all the way through Africa from Cape Town to Cairo. After Cairo, I was a series of lucky breaks, gave me a chance to be on board a, a merchant ship, become a sailor. Uh, it was one of the, those days of the old tramp steamer that would just look for a cargo that would be advertised somewhere that needed to go somewhere else, and the tramp steamer would go and pick it up and carry it across the oceans and drop it wherever it was intended to be. By coincidence, again a small, small little moment in a bar where I was signing chits for a beer that I didn't, the money for which I didn't have. And a portly gentleman next to me looked around and looked at me and said, all right, laddie, what's the trouble? And I immediately got very defensive because uh, I was actually breaking the law. I didn't have any money and I was living in this hotel and drinking as much as I wanted to. And I needed to talk to somebody. Again, I needed to talk to somebody. And I told him my story. And he said, well, I'm the captain of the SS Gregor. That name is enshrined in my memory. Welsh for rock of gold. And believe me, the rust on that ship made it look like a rock of gold. <laughs> and um, he said, I'm sailing for Japan. I'm picking up a cargo of salt, pier number four. If you want to come along for the ride, you're welcome. And that started a memorable encounter with the sea which also is a defining experience for me. And at the end of it, I got home, and I knew I had seen the world, because I did, right around it a couple of times. And I was a writer, and I started to write. And here I am, I don't know how many years later, what's it, 21, 80, 61 years later, here I am. And now comes the second mistake that I avoided making. And that mistake was avoided last night here at the summit. <laughs> I was sitting at a table, as we were all sitting at a table, with incredible people. My God, when I think of it. I mean, next to me on one side was a Saudi Arabian princess, Rima, who spoke so tellingly about what she had done for the underprivileged woman of her country. And it was a very, very incredible story. Sitting on, next to me on the other side was a wife of a Nobel uh, laureate economist who had made an enormous change in the world. And then next to him was sitting Lucas, the film director, Star Wars and all of that. And also at that table was Joshua Bell, 
a brilliant violinist who has given me so much pleasure over the years listening to his recording. And the temptation was to think that I belonged in that company. And now pride is a very good quality in any human being. But there is a matching one for false pride, and mine was false pride, because I don't rate myself in any way. I just do what I have to do. And my business, as it evolved over the years, was telling the stories about the people in my country. And the quality that neutralizes false pride, and it's a very important one, that I urge any young writer in this audience to take to heart, is humility. Be humble. Be humble. And what I'd like to share with you in conclusion is a little note. I'm an addictive notebook keeper. And that has allowed me to keep track of my life in a way. And this is the note which I wrote in August 1968. I was born in 1932, so this is when I was 36 years old. And I say, I wrote, I have said often enough in company, in interviews, that to leave South Africa on a one-way ticket, the so-called exit permit, was an intolerable thought. I've known it was so, but until this afternoon, never felt exactly what would be involved. Didn't need to, I suppose, because it is the truth that to leave this country is unimaginable. Anyway, a walk with Ozduck, that was my dog, a walk with Ozduck in the bush this afternoon ended up on a high sandy ridge, almost a dune where the harsh grey scrub was cropped close to the earth because of exposure to the powerful southwesters. One was blowing, long and clean and cool. In the distance, the sea, brilliantly blue, settling down after three days of rough weather. But it was that scrub underfoot, the nameless, deformed little grey bushes, half their roots exposed by the shifting sand. The thought that I might possibly one day never again walk over them in that silence and innocence. A keen pain, an intolerable sense of loss. Then tonight, the thought came to me that my life's work was possibly just to witness as truthfully as I could the nameless and destitute, the desperate of this little corner of the world. This is what could be lost. Those little grey bushes in the shifting sands of the dune. And so to Olson, the American poet, I have no longer any excuse for envy. My life has been given its orders. The seasons seize the soul and the body and make mock of any dispersed effort. The hour of death will be the only trespass. 
So, no longer any excuse for envy. My life has been given its orders. Love the little grey bushes. Thank you. Fugard speaking in 2014. He is now 89 years old and lives in South Africa. Now, on to his compatriot and contemporary, the novelist and Nobel winner Nadine Gordimer. Some of her best-known works are The Conservationist, Berger's Daughter, and July's People. Several of Gordimer's books were banned during apartheid, She once said she was not a naturally political person, but that there was no way to set stories in South Africa without addressing the terrible cost of apartheid to human beings and their relationships. Her activism went beyond her writings. She joined the African National Congress while it was still banned, and she even advised Nelson Mandela on the famous speech he gave at the trial where he was convicted to life in prison on Robben Island. Nadine Gordimer began her talk at the Academy of Achievement Summit by explaining that instead of reading from one of her books, she wanted to talk about something very important to us all. The image and the word. In the beginning was the word. The word that was creation. Its transformation into the written word came to us when it was first scratched as a hieroglyph or ideogram on a stone or traced in papyrus. And when it travelled from parchment to print in Gutenberg, now that was the next genesis of literacy. It was and is the miraculous ability that humans alone possess within the miracle of creation. Of course, we have learnt like birds the means to take to the air. In our new millennium, stated as dedicated to defining and upholding human rights, surely everyone should be able to read and write. Yet, UNESCO reports that nearly 800 million adults in our era in the world cannot read or write, and more than 100 million children do not go to school, deprived of their rightful heritage, literacy. In South Africa, literacy is almost 50% in certain rural areas. What are the reasons, worldwide or nearer wherever one's home may be? Poverty and lack of educational facilities are the obvious ones in poor and developing countries. The disastrous economic effect is seen from humble levels. For example, at an automobile assembly plant in South Africa, A few years ago, research found that many workers on the line could follow only spoken orders. They were unable to read any uh, written notification. At the level of higher education for the professions, universities are faced with the problem of students ostensibly qualified for entry who do not have the vocabulary or the skilled use of the written word for a university course. The shortage of suitably competent candidates for positions essential in development of governance, social services, industry and commerce is thus evident. 
in order to serve the needs of our South African fast-growing economy, the leading one on the African continent in terms of resources and infrastructure, we have to import qualified individuals from other countries to fill the vacancies while assisting to raise the capabilities of all South Africans, particularly in industry. An upgraded version of each one teach one. But we come back to the absolute. Literacy is the basis of all learning. Even if one does go on to the differently profound numero-idiogrammatic knowledges of science. And on the way back to the source that is the written word, we arrive at a presently prevalent intermediate condition of semi-literacy. This is no doubt worst in multilingual countries where as a result of long colonization, a foreign language became and remains the lingua franca, the second language, not the mother tongue, the word of the inhabitant. One would accept that you're unlikely to be able to read and write the lingua franca as confidently, precisely as once master of the alphabet, you could surely read and write your own. But the distinguished writer and academic, now, alas, no longer with us, Professor Iskia Mpashlele, told me that black South Africans emerged from their schooling semi-literate in the reading and writing of their own mother tongues just as white South Africans and those of other ethno-linguistic backgrounds are semi-literate in theirs. To be able to read the words on a billboard and the bubbling closed dialogue of spacemen in a comic book while you're unable to understand the vocabulary of a poem or a story or a novel, the meaningful variations of syntax, the use of words in ways that open up new depths of self-comprehension self-understanding that is not literacy. That condition is definitely not be the, the condition of being literate. It's, is it not what every individual, every one of us should have by human right? The developing countries, although we have more reasons for producing only the halfway to literacy, we're not alone in this cultural state. Colleges in the USA report the same result of their educational system, a reflection of current cultural values of their society. In Britain, there's the same dismay at young men and women born and educated in the country of the birth of the English language who cannot read or write using the great resources of their mother tongue. So while poverty and lack of educational opportunity are responsible for the great void in our world that is illiteracy. This tragic situation is not the prime cause, let alone the justification for the widespread phenomenon of semi-literacy. The fact is that we are joined, all countries long developed or struggling to develop across the abyss between rich nations and poor, we're all under the threat of the image against the word, the written word. From the first third of the 20th century, the image has been challenging the power of the written word as the stimulation of the imagination, the opening of human receptivity. The bedtime story of middle-class childhood has been replaced by the hour in front of the TV screen. 
in shack settlements all over the poor countries of the globe. The TV aerial signifies the battery-run screen where no book is to be found. School and community libraries don't exist in villages and towns where video cassettes are for hire. Yes, TV images are uh, accompanied by the written the spoken word as well as the written, sometimes by the text, yes, but it is the picture that decides how secondary the words role shall be. The American writer William Gus defines best, I think, the written word in its home, the book. He says, we shall not understand what a book is and why a book has the value many persons have if we forget how important to it is its body, the building that has been built to hold its lines of language safely together. Words on a screen have virtual qualities, to be sure, but they have no materiality. They are only shadows, and when the light shifts, they will be gone. Off the screen, they do not exist as words. They do not wait to be re-seen, re-read. They only wait to be made, remade, relit. Yes, the image of the text of the word disappears off the screen. To recall it, along with other visuals, you have to have an apparatus, a cell, cell a battery, access to an electric power connection. The book needs none of these. Simply held in your hand, it can be read, turned to again and again on a bus, in a subway, in the bath, on a mountaintop, in a queue. This is no fuddy-duddy turning away from progress, believe me. Vast advances in communications technique are an information revolution that has great possibilities for social development, if well used, which means made affordable to the millions in the world whose lives will otherwise be bulldozed by the financial giant, globalization. But information cannot, does not, ever replace illumination. Searching knowledge of the human intellect and spirit that, as all readers among us know, comes in communication through the written word in its infinitely portable, available home between hard or paperback covers. First came the book of the movie. Now it's the book of the website. Don't let it happen. Nadine Gortimer died in 2014 at the age of 90. She gave that talk in 2009. It was just two years after the advent of the iPhone, which didn't even warrant a mention in her remarks. It is a remarkable reminder of how much has changed in the past dozen years, and I think it's a fair guess that Ms. Gortimer would not have been happy with the developments. We end this episode with our last literary and humanitarian sage, Nobel Peace Prize winner Elie Wiesel. He wrote 57 books, including Night, which was based on his experiences in the infamous concentration camps of Auschwitz and Buchenwald. He also spent decades as a champion of human rights around the world and met with countless victims. 
Elie Wiesel died in 2016 at the age of 87. He attended many Academy of Achievement summits, and he said at this one in 2007 that he wondered whether his role as a writer was to collect the tears of victims so he could turn them into stories and perhaps into prayer. I must apologize right away. We won't have time for questions. Although I am a teacher, I love questions. I teach my students, uh, really, the art of questioning. Because I believe that all of us must beware of certainties. And the only way, surely the best way, is by questioning them. Now, <clears throat> I'll tell you an anecdote which will maybe uh, contain many of the things I would like to speak to you. In a restaurant, there is a man eating. All of a sudden, he calls the waiter. He says, sir, it's so cold here. Oh, he said, okay. Five minutes later, he calls the same waiter. Now it's too hot. Five minutes later, he calls him back. Now it's too cold. It goes on and on and on for a half hour. Next, at the next table, there was a man. He calls the waiter. He says, it is weird. This man is driving you crazy. And the waiter says, he's driving me crazy. I am driving him crazy. There is no con air conditioner. <laughs> now, that is really the question. Is there an air conditioner? Is there a secret to what we are doing? Are we all driving someone mad? In my novels especially, I have written a lot about madness. A lot. For all kinds of reasons. Later, I found out really the real reason was that in my hometown, which was Hungary, Romania, uh, there was a mental institution. On the Saturday, every Saturday, my, my, my father would go to prison to visit the prisoners. My mother and sisters would go to the hospital to visit people in the hospital. And occasionally, I would go to bring fruit and candy to those who were in a mental institution. That's how I met madmen. And I realized later on that they have a world which wasn't mine. And I wanted actually to enter their world. What does a madman see? What does a madman feel? Whom does he see when he sees me? And then, of course, the theme of madness changed uh, levels. At times I wonder maybe it is possible for madness to erupt into history. Uh, the Crusades, for sheer madness. The Inquisition, sheer madness. Maybe in the 20th century, uh, communism was madness. Nazism was madness. Maybe the greatest tragedy that occurred in human history was simply a product of madness. Now, you are here, all young, eager to learn, and I listened since last, we were here, Marion and I, since last night. We heard last night three great speeches. Today, very interesting. And there's one word that was missing in all of them. Memory. Now, I believe in memory. I have written almost 50 books. What they have in common really is a commitment to memory. Because I believe memory plays an important role, not only in education, in civilization, but in human relations. That means I become your memory, as you become mine. What is the bridge? Is it words? 
Is it something else? I listened to Tom Friedman today, and of course, not only he can bring passion to something which is absolutely passionless, a computer. <laughs> I know nothing about computers. I really listened with great interest, I must say, because he's a great journalist. But how can he be so excited about computers? I am not. I don't know how to handle it. I still write longhand. One day, my son, our son, said to me, he was at Yale studying, uh, majoring in computer science, and said, Dad, I'm embarrassed you don't use a computer. So for my son, I would do anything. So he brought me a computer. And, uh, and I work very early in the morning. And I got up in the morning, and, and that day, God was with me. I wrote 20 pages, and they were, I felt they were, they were good, which is rare. Usually it goes to the garbage. I felt those pages were good with two fingers, and all of a sudden the screen went blank. <laughs> My wife came in, and I was changing colors. <laughs> My computer got Alzheimer. And what was the worst part of it, that actually, I was writing a novel about Alzheimer. <laughs> now, that novel is called The Forgotten. And usually, I, I, I write for you, for young, my, my readers are young readers. And therefore, I have never given to my publisher a novel unless there was at least a spark of hope in it. I feel I have no right to give you more reasons to despair. You have enough. Here, impossible to find a single spark of, of hope. Alzheimer's is a cancer of identity. It's the end, literally the end. I compare an Alzheimer's patient to a, to a book. I compare everything to a book. Because you tear off one page, and then the next page, and then the next page. At the end, there is nothing except the two covers. That is the Alzheimer's patient. It, and I kept the novel in my drawer for more than a year until I found a way. I found at least a spark of hope in that. I won't give it to you because who knows, maybe you'll buy the book. My very dear young friends, really, I speak to you as a teacher. The teacher in me is a writer, and the writer in me is a teacher. And what I want you to know, if I go on teaching and writing, it's because this century is your century, not mine. It's for you to shape it. I almost said for you to save it. What can I tell you that I have learned from life, which I think may be important to you, First of all, whatever the question, the, the essential question, the existential question is, education must be its major component. Second, do not see in the other an enemy, not even an adversary. I have learned that. Now, I had all the reasons in the world, believe me, to see in the other a source of danger. Usually, 
usually when, when I go in the street and something happens and I feel fear, I go to the policeman and say, help me. In my time, in my youth, the policeman was the enemy. And therefore, I know today it's again, I have to make, I have to make an adjustment to see in the policeman a protector of the right, as in the judge. The judge then was the enemy. Today I know the judge is just the opposite. The judge is here to protect law and those, and those who believe in the law, as I do. I had all the rights in the world, all the reasons in the world, believe me, to give up on God. I have, I have seen what I had seen. And the question really for me was and still is, am I God's victim, God's orphan, God's prisoner, or God's ally? It's my choice, not his. Furthermore, yes, what we have heard from all of these speakers, yes, the planet has become small. What does it mean? It means that whatever happens in Rwanda affects me. And if people in Rwanda die, and I at least raise my voice, then I am responsible. Whatever happens in Darfur today, my God, if I don't shout that something is wrong with me, not with Darfur, because Darfur is not there, Darfur is here in my heart. Second, I have learned that the worst sin, of course, is to be a spectator. We are not spectators, we are participants. If a person suffers and, and I keep quiet again, then I am responsible for that person's suffering. There are so many lessons that I have learned. At the same time, I know, when I go into my classroom, believe me, and I love my students, I, I feel sad for them. What century have I left for them? Wars, and more wars, and more wars. When will it end? My God, when will it end? Civil wars, religious wars, all kinds of wars, absurd, stupid, grotesque wars in the world. What for? I came to America. I went on a coast-to-coast trip because I was a journalist from New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco and back. And I remember when I came to the South for the first time, and I saw not only racism at work, but racism being the law. The law. It was lawful to humiliate another person because of his or her color. For the first time in my life, I felt shame. I never felt shame during the war. I felt, I felt crushed. But the word shame never entered my, my mind or my psyche. Now I felt shame for being white. And if I became involved in that struggle, and later we went to, to South Africa, my, my wife and I, we brought out everything. It's because I felt shame whenever I saw the law becoming inhuman. The law. So what can I tell you? Believe me. If I were alone, I probably had the right, I would have had the right to say, come on, it's enough. I have told my tale, I have written my books, I have taught my classes, and now it's time to go. Let somebody else do it.
But I'm not alone. No human being is alone. God alone is alone. We are responsible. That means there is response in responsibility. The best response. And I am responsible for your memories. I am responsible for your lives. At least for one moment. And the only advice, help I can give you is one. You collect information at school from your computers. It's much more important to collect from each other. Information is important because it brings knowledge. Knowledge has a metaphysical component, and I teach philosophy. So remember, knowledge is important. Then the main thing, whatever you do, whatever you acquire, whatever you achieve, should have a moral dimension. Moral dimension means to feel the other person's pain and joy. In one sentence, if I were to give you an advice, as a very old teacher, I would say that whatever endeavor, whatever endeavor you, you take on, think higher, but feel deeper. Thank you very much. The remarkable Elie Wiesel. Don't forget to listen to our full episode with him from July of 2016. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. See you next time. What It Takes is made possible with generous funding from the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.